Greetings, friends. This is the One Year Bible Tour Guide podcast, and this is day 235 on our trek through the Bible. It is August 23rd, and I would like to give a birthday greeting to my dear wife, Mary Ellen. She has just completed another orbit in our solar system as a fellow traveler on planet Earth, and I'm so grateful that her life revolves around the Son of Righteousness who has risen with healing in his wings. What a blessing she has been to me for nearly five decades now. Today we continue reading through the Old Testament book of Job. Job has become God's suffering servant, answering the charge of the devil, although he does not recognize it at the time. He is caught, as we all are, in the perplexity of this Genesis 3 world, wrestling with the trials and temptations that come with suffering. We are so grateful to the second person of the Trinity, who willingly became the suffering servant, according to Isaiah chapter 53. He entered this Genesis 3 world as the promised deliverer, the seed of the woman who would crush the headship of Satan to reverse the curse through yielding his life as an atonement for sin. He became one of us. He identified with us. He sat where Job sat. He sat where we sat. He suffered the temptations, trials, and perplexities that come with our human condition, yet without sin. God puts his suffering servant on display before Satan and his angels in the book of Job. All of this prefigures what he will put on display before principalities and powers through his perfect suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Like Job, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with all kinds of grief. Unlike Job, Jesus carried our sorrows as our sin-bearing substitute. But like Job, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. His friends forsake him. Job's friends give theological answers that are misapplied. We hear from them one by one. Yesterday we heard from Eliphaz, the oldest of the three friends, that showed up first. He is certain that Job is being chastened by God for his own wrongdoings. It is horrifying to consider how the religious leaders of Jesus' day thought that Jesus was being duly punished for the sin of blasphemy when it was they who were the blasphemers. Today we hear from the next of Job's false comforters, Bildad, the second oldest. So let's return to the book of Job, chapter 8, and we will read through to chapter 11 and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Bildad speaks. Job should repent. Job chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow." Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, 
but it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Job replies, There is no arbiter. Chapter 9 Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, What are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us, who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Job continues a plea to God. Chapter 10 I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. 
I will say to God, Do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man, or your years as a man's years, that you should seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty, and there is none to deliver out of your hand? Your hands fashioned me and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. If I sin, you watch me, and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift my head, for I am filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. And were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. Why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick darkness. Zophar speaks. You deserve worse. Chapter 11. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But, oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. 
And this concludes our reading from the Old Testament portion from the book of Job. Now let's take a few moments to recap and reflect. Bildad the Shuhite attempts to counsel his friend Job. His words are not very comforting. He accuses Job of being full of hot air. Another negative equivalent would be to say that Job's defense proved that he was a blowhard, someone who speaks a lot, if not boastfully, while communicating nothing meaningful or significant. Bildad asks Job, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Job chapter 8 verse 2. Bildad thinks that to defend God's justice in dealing with Job, he must accuse Job of unrighteousness. He insinuates that Job must have some secret sin. In defending God's justice, Bildad presents three arguments. Number one, God's character. In Job chapter 8 verses 1 through 7, Bildad knows from history that God has brought judgment upon unrepentant sinners. This fact was evident in the flood. It was evident in the calamity that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Bildad wrongly applies his fragmented view of God's character to the trial of Job. Bildad understands that God is just, but he does not grasp the other complementary aspects of God's character. He does not understand his love and mercy, or the ministry of God's grace made possible through the coming work of redemption. He does not understand that God would provide the perfect atonement of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for those who believe him. Bildad does not only argue on the basis of God's character, but, number two, from the wisdom of the past, in Job chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. Bildad assumes that all the wisdom of the past is on his side, defending the view that God would not allow a person who was sincere in his or her devotion to suffer. He suggests that Job consider this in Job chapter 8, verse 8. Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. The fact that something was said or written in the past does not mean that it is entirely true or applicable to the present moment. The past contains great errors as well as great truths, and therefore even what has been written by wise individuals should be carefully examined. Bildad not only argued on the basis of God's character and the wisdom from the past, but number three, he appeals to the fact that wisdom can be gained from observing nature in verses 11 through 22. Bildad attempts to prove his point with three arguments from nature. First, he believes Job's suffering is an illustration of the law of cause and effect, just as can be found in plant life. The papyrus plant flourishes when it is planted in water, but if it does not have water, it withers, fades, and dies. The water is key to the plant's survival, so Job must not be rightly related to his life source, that is God, because his life is clearly withering and fading. Bildad gives an additional illustration of a spider's web that has its function, but it is not strong enough to lean on. Even so, Job's confidence in his innocence is a fragile argument in Bildad's eyes. It will not hold up. The third illustration is that of a garden plant's root system. When it spreads and is anchored properly beneath the ground, the plant does well. But if it is uprooted, it no longer has health. Job must have done something wrong for God to have uprooted him in such a manner and caused him to be in his current tragic state. Bildad concludes that unless God intervenes to change his circumstances and vindicate him, his condition is a clear indication of his guilt. Bildad encourages Job to repent of his sin to be restored to God's favor. He says, Lo, 
God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. Job chapter 8, verse 20. Bildad's theology is confined by his limited legalistic mindset. In Job chapters 9 and 10, Job asks three questions. The first is the ultimate question, how can a man be in the right with God? Job chapter 9, verse 2. The second is rhetorical, how can I meet God in court? Job chapter 9, verses 14 and 35. The third is more ponderous, why was I born? In Job chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. In response to the first two questions, Job is responding to his friends in Job 9. In the response to the third question, Job is responding to God in Job chapter 10. Job's first question highlights the greatest need of the human being, a right standing before God. But how can a man be in the right before God? Job chapter 9 verse 2. Job tries to understand his situation in the light of God's justice. In his argument, he uses forensic terminology that brings a courtroom scene to mind. Notice the words dispute, answer, and contend, indicating a courtroom case of entering into litigation and having to furnish proof and produce testimony. In Job chapter 9, verse 3, we read, If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. In Job chapter 10, verse 2, I will say to God, Do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. In the divine courtroom, Job recognizes his need for mercy from his judge. He says, For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. In Job chapter 9, verse 15. Why? Because God's righteousness is infinitely beyond what we can perceive as human beings. In Job chapter 9, verse 32. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. The universe is this judge's chambers, in Job chapter 9, verses 4 through 11, over which he exercises full sovereign authority. Likewise, in the courtroom, he cannot be manipulated, fooled, or summoned. In Job 9, verse 19, If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one, and if it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? We can see from this passage why the Lord will later commend Job for speaking about him correctly in Job chapter 42, verse 7. In verse 33 of chapter 9, Job speaks of his need for a mediator who can lay his hand on both God and sinful man. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon both of us. Job chapter 9, verse 33. Jesus fulfills this needed role on our behalf. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5-6 through 6. Job rightly acknowledges that God is his creator and gave him life, but he does not sense that God is treating him as one of his creations. He feels that God is contending with him, oppressing him, and rejecting him, and he does not know why. He confesses that God must have his reasons, but as a created being, he is feeling clueless. In Job chapter 10, verse 13, he says, Yet these things you have concealed in your heart. I know that this is within you. Job at this point questions why he was ever born. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been, carried from womb to tomb. Job chapter 10, verses 18 through 19. 
Job feels hemmed in by God and searches for deliverance. In fact, God is hemming him in, and he has furnished for him a deliverer in Jesus Christ. There is a reason that Job is being kept in the dark. Job is unwittingly God's instrument in repudiating Satan's charge against him. Job's defense was not good enough for his friends. Now it is Zophar's chance to speak. Zophar is the youngest of the three, and therefore he is the last to speak. He accuses Job of being guilty of sin in chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, ignorant of God in chapter 11, verses 5 through 12, and stubborn in his refusal to repent in Job chapter 11, verses 13 through 20. He warns Job of the danger of not admitting his guilt and repenting of his sin. In Job chapter 11, verse 20, Zophar says, But the eyes of the wicked will fail, and there will be no escape for them, and their hope is to breathe their last. Now let's move to our New Testament reading for today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 28, this is the great resurrection chapter in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The Resurrection of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And this concludes our reading from today's portion from the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. In many ways, chapter 15 is the jugular vein of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He directs his readers to the plain, simple truth of the gospel. The gospel is good news. It is not merely good advice. The bad news is that we were hopelessly lost and dead in our sins. The good news is that God, in his great love, came to our rescue. He accomplished the essential work of our redemption by yielding his life as an atonement for sin. Yet what he accomplished in his death would be without any effect if he had not been raised from the dead. Paul is a classic demonstration of a man who recognizes this. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Think about it. Had not Christ been raised, the Apostle Paul would never have been confronted with the reality of his sin, his debt to the law, his need for salvation, and that this salvation is found in the person of Jesus, crucified, risen, and coming again. Had not Jesus been raised from the dead, Paul would not have known the transforming effect of knowing Christ as his living Savior. Apart from the resurrection, Paul would have been lost to God's purpose and empty of God's power. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, he says, No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The Corinthian church had many problems, yet they could all be solved if they truly understood the implications of Christ's resurrection. They could be delivered from following the desires of their flesh if they submitted themselves to His living Lordship and lived in the power of His indwelling life according to His Word. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Without qualification, the Apostle Paul declares that the gospel is of first importance. Therefore, we must give our attention to preaching it, not just to others, but to ourselves. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Paul emphasizes that the gospel is about historic facts, without which there would be no hope for the human race. These facts are to be believed. This Christ is to be received on His terms, as He is the crucified, risen, and returning Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and will return as the righteous King and Judge. Fact number one, Jesus died. His was an extraordinary death. It accomplished what no other death could have accomplished. He died as a sinless substitute, fulfilling all that the law required of a perfect atonement. He is the Passover Lamb, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, and Exodus chapter 12. His death satisfies the justice of God, making it possible for the angel of death to pass over and for a holy God to forgive hell-deserving sinners. He fulfills the types of the perfect sacrifice and scapegoat to be offered on the great day of atonement, as described in Leviticus chapter 16. He is the perfect fulfillment of what is typified in the burnt offering, peace offering, fellowship offering, sin offering, and trespass offering of Leviticus chapters 1 through 5. His death is the means of peace being made with God on our behalf. 
He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being, the punishment that brought us peace, fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Christ provided the full atonement for our sins. He fulfills all that was declared in the law and the prophets. This is what it means when we read that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. Fact number two, Jesus was buried. The burial was proof that he died. Although numbered with the transgressors in his death, he was assigned a place of honor in his burial, and the Father did not allow the body of his crucified Son to suffer corruption or decay, as foretold by the Scripture centuries before, prior to the event, in Psalm 16, verse 10. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Or, as Isaiah 53, verse 9 says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53, verse 9. Fact number 3. He was raised on the third day. The theological meaning is made known to us in the Scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15, 4. He rises as the federal head of a new creation. He is raised as the prophets foretold on the third day, the feast of the first fruits, the day after the Passover Sabbath, in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 14, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23. He also gave straightforward predictions of his death and his resurrection on the third day, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Matthew chapter 17, verse 22, and Luke chapter 9, verse 22. The Apostles also record Jesus' more oblique and indirect predictions, which are far less likely to be of human invention. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Mark chapter 14, verse 58, and Matthew chapter 26, verse 61, Jesus promised that his death and resurrection would be the sign of Jonah. His resurrection signals to a greater degree the new beginning on the right course that the release from the belly of the big fish meant for Jonah. His resurrection is a new beginning on the right course for the penitent believers in the stream of humanity. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. The events of the cross call us all to repentance towards God and faith in the crucified and risen Savior. The New Testament writers preach how the Old Testament scriptures predicted the resurrection of the Messiah in Isaiah 53 verses 10 through 12, Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11, and Psalm chapter 22 verse 22, and we see this, and these fulfillments are referenced in Acts chapter 2 verse 25 through 28 and Hebrews chapter 2 verse 12. Fact number four. Jesus appeared. As the burial sealed the reality of his death, so the appearances sealed the reality of his resurrection. His resurrection was not the product of imaginative disciples. It was a surprising jolt to their unbelief. The list of resurrection witnesses is not exhaustive. Paul gives testimony as would be required in a court of law. He lists men. Some of these, like James, the half-brother of Jesus, and Paul, Saul of Tarsus, were known to be unbelievers prior to the resurrection. According to John chapter 7 verse 5, Acts chapter 8 verse 1, and 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15, Galatians chapter 1 verse 13, and Philippians chapter 3 verse 6. Fact number 5, because of the resurrection, we have certain hope of victory over sin and death. 
but Paul reminds us that the resurrection of Christ as the first fruit is a prototype of the resurrection to come. When the high priest waved the sheaf of first fruits before the Lord on the feast of first fruits, it was a sign that the entire future harvest belonged to him. Not only can we be sure that our sins are forgiven, but we can be assured that we will one day be raised bodily to be reunited with Christ and all those who have been brought into his forever family. Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 read, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. As predicted in Daniel, there will be a future resurrection of all people, believers and unbelievers. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus rose as the first fruit of the resurrection harvest. The first fruit is a promise of a harvest to come. The Feast of Pentecost predicts the ingathering of the resurrection harvest. Jesus spoke of this in John chapter 12, verse 24, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Jesus is the prototype resurrected man. At Pentecost, we are united with the resurrected man in glory by the Spirit. One day, we will see the Lord in our glorified flesh. Job spoke of this in Job chapter 19, verse 26. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22, Paul contrasts the life of Adam with the life of Christ. The first Adam was made from the earth. The last Adam was the first Adam's maker, come from heaven, to take on flesh in the incarnation. The first Adam disobeyed God and brought sin and death into the world. The last Adam obeyed God and brought righteousness and life into the world. Adam and Christ are contrasted also in verses 45 through 47. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. There is an order of sequence in the future resurrection. We know that the resurrection of believers is separate from the resurrection of unbelievers. Paul speaks of the rapture and resurrection of believers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. John speaks of a separate and later resurrection of unbelievers in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. This order is also confirmed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 23 through 28. We see history culminating with all rebellion being rooted out and all things put under Christ's feet, so that God will be all in all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. Now we move on to Psalm 38. In reading Psalm 38, 1 through 22, will be Peter Healy. A Psalm of David, 
Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my inequities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning. And there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, Only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity, and I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Thank you, Peter. The first penitential song we read was Psalm 6, followed by Psalm 32. Psalm 38 is the third penitential psalm in the book of Psalms. Sometimes physical problems can be the result of our disobedience towards God's commands. God had chastened David for his sin, and he was feeling it in his body, his flesh, his bones in verse 3, his head in verse 4, his wounds in verse 5, his back in verse 6, his loins in verse 7, his heart in verse 8 and 10, his strength in verse 10, his nervous system in verse 8, his eyes in verse 10, his ears in verses 13 and 14, and his spirit in verses 6, 8, 10, and 17. The result of God's dealing is also isolation from his family and friends in verse 11, and persecution from his enemies in verse 12. But the psalmist is seeking to respond in a way that honors God. He confesses his sin and his anxieties in verse 18. He knows that he can expect opposition because he seeks to follow the Lord, and the unbelieving world is opposed to God in verse 20. The psalm closes with his desperate prayer request. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Psalm 38, verses 21 and 22. And for our final stop on today's reading tour, we go to the book of Proverbs, verses 28 and 29. 
A false witness will perish, but the word of a man who hears will endure. A wicked man puts on a bold face, but the upright gives thought to his ways. Take heed, false witnesses will ultimately be discredited and destroyed, but the one who listens to the truth will speak forever. This reminds us of Jesus' words to Pontius Pilate when he said, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice in John 18 verse 37, and the result is that they will have eternal life that speaks forever. Verse 29 explains the well-used phrase, a bold-faced lie. In contrast to the dishonesty of the wicked who put up a false front, those who are truly in the right with God will want to think and act in a way that pleases Him. Let's take what we've learned to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, You have given us a solid anchor, a certain hope, in the resurrection of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grave is empty and our hearts are full as we embrace him by faith as our Savior. We trust in his merits as we make our plea to you to come to our aid. We thank you for reminding us of the gospel. Give us a boldness to believe it and proclaim it faithfully. Grant our world a spiritual awakening in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've covered much territory in our tour today, and I trust that you are enriched and you've got plenty to meditate upon. God willing, we will continue our journey tomorrow. If you have any questions or comments, you can write to us at podcast at newlife.org. And if you'd like to receive information about our ministries or receive a daily email with a written copy of our commentary on the Bible portions of the day, you can go to our website, newlife.org. So until next time, Remember that because the grave is empty, our hearts can be and are full. Peace be with you. Shalom.